We've, uh, we've come to the conclusion of our series in First and Second Corinthians with this, uh, this final passage. Uh, we finished last week with some uh, strong words, uh, the call to stand firm in the gospel, to be God's holy people, uh, to be willing to face the discipline of Jesus, the Lord of the church, if he sees it fit to discipline us. But also we saw the call to be willing to receive his outstretched hand if he chooses to work among us in signs and wonders and mighty works. But all the time we are to find the foundation of our faith in his word, not in our experiences. This uh, was the conclusion to the extended part of Paul's letter in which Paul was defending himself and the other apostles' ministry. They were coming under fire from the so-called super-apostles, those who... um, claimed that their ministry was the true ministry and that the original apostles had actually uh, not fully understood the gospel. What Paul is doing here in this passage is he's turning the tables on the Corinthians who were listening to these super apostles and were, they were making an assessment of Paul to say, is Paul really a truly apostle or not? Should we listen to him or not? Those who were judging Paul and the others had to be reminded that self-examination should always come first. There's four things that I want us to take note of in this verse 5. Firstly, we can be very quick, can't we, to examine others without first applying the same standard to ourselves first. One of the, the best known and maybe most quoted Bible verses in the world today, even though many who quote it don't actually know its context, they just know it's something Jesus said, judge not. We hear it rolled out whenever uh, someone is critiquing another person's lifestyle or beliefs or values. But when we see those two words in the actual context of Jesus' teaching, we see that it's not always as simplistic as just saying, I won't listen to you, judge not. Here's what Jesus said, judge not, that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give to dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn 
to attack you. So see how this isn't a blanket prohibition on judging in the sense of making an assessment of another person's actions or words. There is an appropriate place and time to take the speck out of our brother or sister's eye, provided we first apply the same standard we're using to ourselves. So judge not that you be not judged isn't referring there to God's judgments, but the judgment of your neighbour. If I call someone else to a certain standard, I'm giving them permission to judge me by the same standard. Now, Jesus here isn't actually teaching anything new. He's simply affirming what the law already taught. For example, in Deuteronomy chapter 19, if a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in office in those days. The judges shall inquire diligently and if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. See how here the the problem begins in the heart. If I have malicious intent against someone, I dislike them, I hold resentment against them for some reason, well, I'm more likely to then become a malicious witness against them because I might deliberately want to cause them harm or because my own personal resentment means I'll be inclined to always interpret what they do in a negative way and to accuse them of things for which I have no grounds to accuse them. So if I'm found to be a malicious witness, if I've broken the ninth commandment of bearing false witness against my neighbour, then the law says I'm to be judged with the same judgment I pronounced as if I were actually guilty of that sin. That's why Jesus said to the men who wanted to stone the adulterous woman, let him who is without sin among you be the first to cast a stone at her. In the law, no witness was allowed to be guilty of the same crime as the accused. So when those men all dropped their stones and walked away, that tells you about what they realised was going on in their hearts. The second thing to notice is that the goal of this examination is to see whether you are in the faith. Now, faith here is a noun. It's not referring to the personal act of believing, but to the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints, as Jude says in Jude 3. It's referring to the doctrinal content of the faith, of the gospel. So the issue here isn't whether or not you believe 
because everyone has beliefs about something but whether what we believe is actually the truth. And truth isn't determined by what makes us feel good or what helps us achieve some kind of pragmatic goal. The truth is determined by Jesus Christ who is the truth himself. So truth is always objective. It remains constant regardless of whether I believe it or not. So similarly, the faith, the content of the gospel, the word of God doesn't change regardless of whether each generation sees it as relevant or not. We can't adjust the gospel to suit our personal preferences or adapt it to make it feel more relevant to the world. Rather, we must be ready to adjust ourselves if we find that in any point we're out of sync with the faith, the gospel. When Peter was preaching on the day of Pentecost, he said to the crowd, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Their generation was crooked. It was out of line with the truth because they'd rejected their Messiah. They'd crucified him. But the call of the gospel was be realigned to the truth by coming to Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. The same one that you crucified now offers you forgiveness. The gospel promise always comes hand in hand with the command to repent and believe, to forsake the crooked way of sin and to be straightened up by being in line with Jesus. Remember Jesus' words after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The kingdom of God is the true way. So come into line with that. So we continue to do this, to proclaim that message of repentance and faith in the gospel as we hold on to the faith, as we stand firm on the gospel, the gospel that hasn't changed since Jesus proclaimed it. Thirdly, see that this phrase includes both the personal and the corporate dimension. But the emphasis is on the corporate. Paul uses the plural. Examine yourselves, plural, to see whether you, the word you there is in the plural, are in the faith. Test yourselves, plural. I have an individual responsibility to examine myself, to identify the things in myself, the intentions of the heart, the the motives of my actions, the words I speak, the things I do that are sinful and not of the truth and be willing to repent and to affirm the gospel truth. But a key part of that involves ensuring that I am a member of the church community. The church provides support and accountability in self-examination. Paul says in Colossians 2, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, 
teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So teaching, there is the supporting side of the coin. We, we hear the word of Christ, we learn together, we become more unified with one another in our shared commitment to the truth, the faith. Admonishing is the accountability side of the coin, where we gently correct and warn one another, both in areas of living and in areas of believing. And note the setting in which this is placed, that of singing with thankfulness to God. It tells us that this must all happen in the context not of a, an institutional or a club mentality, but in the context of a worshipping community in which Christ is the centre of all of our attention and our affections to the glory of God. I'm currently walking with someone through a marriage breakdown and I believe a key issue in what's happened is that that person hasn't been established in a local church community in which the support and the accountability could have been provided by the pastor and the members of that church. In this world today where our culture more and more stresses the rights and the sovereignty of the individual, telling people that faith and morality are purely private and subjective and are all about personal preference, we Christians need the church more than ever if we are to be a truly an expression of Christ to the world. So we need to be united in our common faith with Christ as the object and Christ as the content of that faith. So this morning we recited the Apostles' Creed, an ancient summary of the faith that's been affirmed for at least 1,700 years by the church across the world through history. So doing so every now and then as we do is a way that we can examine ourselves to see whether we as a community, as a church are in the faith. And coincidentally in God's providence we're also part way through that creed in our community groups as we're journeying our way through the Heidelberg Catechism, a much larger and more comprehensive statement of the faith. So we must be saying as a church, are these truths, truths that we continue to uphold and teach? As you read each line and phrase, you must ask yourselves, what does this mean? Why is this important to know? And do I truly believe it or am I just paying lip service? Because that's what we do in church. So, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Now, examine here speaks of the process. Test points to the result. Just as the Year 12 students recently had their exams 
and most of them can probably say they think they know how they went. The crunch will come in a few weeks when the test results come out and they know. This word test has a positive connotation. It's the word that Peter uses here in 1 Peter chapter 1. In this you rejoice, sufferings, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is the spirit in which Paul is writing. He wants us to remember this one important thing. Jesus Christ is in you. This is a statement of fact, of reality. It's not something we're to do or to create. We do examining of ourselves, but Christ is in you. The church is the work of Christ. It's his temple. It's his building. And among the church, he walks as the high priest, tending to each individual church like the priests would tend the lampstands in the temple to ensure that their flame, the flame that signified the presence of God, would never go out. So the church is not an organisation that we create and then we invite Jesus to be a part of it. We are his workmanship. He calls us to be members in the Father's household, to come into something that he's already established. So that is the ultimate criteria that's needed for us to meet the test or fail the test. Can we say Jesus Christ is in us? Now, of course, any church or group could make that claim. So the key thing is, well, what do we mean by Jesus Christ? That's already been made clear, hasn't it? In verse 4, which I haven't put up, sorry. He who was crucified in weakness, but who now lives by the power of God. That's the core of all true Christian confessions of faith. Jesus, the Lamb of God, who was crucified for our sins, was raised for our justification and is now Lord of the church and of the whole world. So is that the Jesus Christ that we know to be in us and walking among us? But it still begs the question, how are we to know then that this Christ, this risen Lord Jesus is among us? It's more than just having a scripturally based correct confession because it's actually about the presence of Christ, his actual presence which is made manifest in the lives of those who confess his name. And what we've been seeing all the way through these two letters of 1st and 2nd Corinthians is that this manifestation of the presence of Christ isn't necessarily in the spectacular things that the world defines as powerful but in his power that's made perfect in weakness. Mark Seyfried who wrote a 
commentary on 2 Corinthians that I've been referring to a bit through this series says the mark of the presence of Jesus Christ is power within weakness, righteousness within sin, life within death, comfort within suffering. So just as we know the Spirit's work among us because we recognise him by the fruits, Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. If we see those things happening, we can say the Spirit is among us. So too, we know that Jesus Christ is among us because his character is displayed in our lives and our community. See how this is what Paul desires above everything else for the Corinthians. In verse 7, even if the apostles are seen by the Corinthians to have failed, even if they write them off and say, we won't let any of these men come into our church again, that actually comes secondary to them remaining in the faith and knowing the living Jesus among them. In verse 8, he knows that whatever happens, the truth will prevail because it's Jesus who is the truth. It's Jesus who's doing the work to make them a community shaped by him. And in verse 10, he knows that that severe discipline may be necessary to save the church from being torn down. It's always a last result, a last resort, sorry. Verse, yeah, verse 10. He's deliberately writing this letter while he is apart from them. He's praying that God will do the work of restoration in them before he comes. So he has complete confidence in Jesus Christ who is in and among the church. Whether Paul comes or goes, whether he lives or dies, whether he sees them again or not, he can be comforted that The church is in Jesus' care. And so we should be just as confident too. Now, verse 11 is normally put together in our modern Bibles in the way that the translators put the paragraphs with the final benediction. And I hope you've noticed that this is a benediction that I've been using um, quite a bit while we've been going through these, these books. But verse 11 is actually a a brief, comprehensive summary of the key things that he's been saying in his letter. So if you remember nothing else from this series on 2 Corinthians, remember 2 Corinthians 13.11 because it will then help you remember everything else that we've read. Firstly, he says rejoice. The goal of it all is joy. Jesus' desire for us is that his joy would be in us and that our joy would be full, that we would know the love of the Father through him. Just as sin covers a multitude of sin, uh, sorry, love covers a multitude of sins, get that right, so joy covers a multitude of sorrows. The joy of our salvation, of knowing him, outweighs the suffering 
and the hardships and the difficulties that our own sinfulness and foolishness bring about. Now note here that joy is not an emotion. It's not something that happens to us. It's something we're commanded to do. Rejoice. And it's not just a glib, insensitive, just be happy. Put a smile on your dial. It's a command to look squarely and firmly at the truth of Jesus Christ and all that he is, all that he has done for us and to set our affections on him and intentionally seek to find our joy in him. And it's only a heart that's filled with joy that will enable everything else in this verse to flow genuinely and sincerely. So secondly, he says, aim for restoration. Other English versions translate this as become mature or be perfected. It's a word that means not just restored, but fully restored. We should settle for nothing less than the Father's design for his children to be transformed into the image of his Son. We must welcome one another as Christ welcomed us. Forgive as he forgave us. Love as he loved us. Lay down our lives as he did for us. Never be content with anything else. In 1 Corinthians we saw a church with divisions and problems and a tangible relational tension between them and Paul. Then by the time we came to the middle of 2 Corinthians... Some of those issues had been dealt with. Their relationship was under repair. He heard that they had begun to deal with some of the matters that had been raised. We shouldn't underestimate the power of Christ and his word to bring restoration to situations that, humanly speaking, seem beyond hope. Just as everything God does in this fractured world is with a goal, with a view to the new heavens and the new earth. So we should also hold on to hope that our relatively petty fractures can be healed by him. Thirdly, he says, comfort one another. Paul opened this letter with these words, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us, in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. We saw that that word comfort appears multiple times in, in just a few short verses. And we also saw that the word for comfort is the word paraclesis, the word that's used for the work of the Holy Spirit, the paraclete. The Holy Spirit does his work not to make us feel warm and comfortable but to stand us up on our feet and to propel us into the Father's mission. As we heard from our opening passage this morning, um, lift up those drooping knees and make straight paths for your feet. It's the same idea. So to comfort one another is to be led and filled with the Holy Spirit to be participants in the Spirit's work so that as a community 
we may be working together on the mission that he's called us to in this place at this time. Fourthly, he says, agree with one another. Of course, we can't be on mission together unless we agree with one another. We don't have to all be the same. doesn't mean we never have differences of opinion or perspective, but we must be of one mind when it comes to the Gospel. To stand in our corporate confession of faith and in our worship of Christ who is in us and among us. To agree with one another, we, we mustn't use the methods that the world and the sinful flesh uses. You could call it tribalism, in which I only associate with or gather people who already share the same beliefs and ideas and values as me. And I keep away from those I differ with, except for the times I go over there to criticise or attack them. See, agreeing is not about finding people who are the same as me. Agreeing means I must be willing to change my mind as I open myself to hear other people, as I see things from their perspective. But it's even more than that. We must all come together and have our minds changed by the word of God. It's not about you coming into my camp or me submitting to your ideas or opinions, but all of us coming from our various biased positions in which we might all be partly or completely wrong. As we heard last uh, few weeks ago, we must take every thought captive to make it obedient to Christ. So that what we agree on is not that I agree with you and you agree with me, but we all agree on the word of Christ, not our own various words, so that together we can speak our amen to God as a church. Now, of course, again, that's something that can't happen if... My faith is purely personal and private. Not that God won't speak to me, but how can we agree with one another unless we are keeping company with one another? I put it to you that maybe this once a week gathering on Sunday may not be enough for you to be truly in agreement with your brothers and sisters in this community. We need to be connecting with one another between Sundays, gathering at other times as we do in community groups, seeking opportunities to grow together around the word. The first Christians met daily in their homes and in the temple courts. That was much easier for them in first century Jerusalem than for us and I'm not saying we need to start suddenly having daily meetings But we need to consider how can we continue to be diligent in spurring one another on to love and good deeds? How can we encourage one another whenever we have the opportunity as we're looking forward to that day when Jesus will appear 
and when we will be with one another daily for eternity. Fifthly, he says, live in peace. And this goes hand in hand with a promise. The God of love and peace will be with you. Note that it's not our living in peace that causes God to be with us. It's the other way round. We can live at peace because we have the certainty that God is with us. He has made his dwelling place in the word made flesh in Jesus and in his spirit poured out. We are the household of the God of love and peace. So we should live as the people that he's declared us to be, confident that he is here, that he will continue to be here with us. Now there's one more command in this passage that expressed the reality of those last five points for the Corinthians. Greet one another with a holy kiss. In the first century, a kiss was accepted as a greeting that expressed friendship and family. It communicated vulnerability and a deep level of trust between people. It spoke of joy, restoration, comfort, agreement and peace in that one simple act. Now we've lost that today. The idea of Christians coming into physical contact with one another in some way. Our culture is very quick to put implications of abuse or sexualisation on touch. And we know more recently the fear of infection has pushed us physically further apart. But both of those things in our culture haven't removed the created human need to express and receive love through physical contact. Now I'm not saying that we should all start kissing one another in church. But do we neglect the opportunities to express the fact that we are brothers and sisters in Christ in more than just words and intentions. Uh, Megan Hill uh, wrote very helpfully, uh, what is a holy kiss? It's a culturally appropriate, morally chaste, physical expression of love for other believers. It could be a hand on a shoulder, a warm smile with a hand clasp, or a friendly hug. A touch that publicly acknowledges our bond with other members of Christ's body. It's not just a kiss, it's a holy kiss. A kiss reclaimed from a fallen world and repurposed for the glory of God. Imagine a community in which everyone makes it their goal to see that at least one other, in, one other person in our gatherings leaves knowing that they're welcomed and loved. Well, we don't need to imagine it. That's the community that God has formed 
through Jesus Christ. Christ has welcomed us. He has welcomed us. He has greeted us with a holy kiss. He wasn't afraid to touch our humanity. In fact, he embraced our humanity to become a man. Now I can't read my notes. In Jesus Christ, the divine has touched the human with tenderness and deep affection. And he calls us to be a people who reflect this love in the way that we relate to one another. Let's pray.